All right, folks, you made it to the end. We're at the end of the Lord's Prayer. It's only taken eight weeks to get there. And we know it says, he that endures to the end will be saved. So you made it. We are looking this morning at the final expression of the model prayer. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And what I hope to accomplish today, and as much as my limited ability allows, is to elevate the glory of God and the name of Christ as King as we wrap up this series on the Lord's Prayer. So one final time, let's all say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. Amen. Now, when I say one final time, I just meant like in this moment. I don't mean don't ever say it again, right? I just want to be clear about that. So we are at this end. This is the last expression in this prayer. Now I want to deal, before I get into the sermonic part of this, I want to deal a little bit with the history of this particular phrase, and I think it's important. I think, I think there's some, uh, it's worth mentioning some things. And don't let this mess you up, okay? What I'm about to say may, it, sometimes when you bring this kind of stuff up, it tweaks people. And if you, want, if you need help working through it later, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not going to get into too many details, but you may or not be aware that this ending of this prayer, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. How many of y'all have an ESV Bible? How many of y'all have an NASB Bible? How many have an NIV Bible? How many of you have a CSB Bible or the Southern Baptist Translation? So modern translations do not have this phrase in there, and there's a reason for that. The NASB 95, I think, does, but the one they're working on now probably doesn't. The reason for that is it is found in the King James, New King James, and some of the older translations. It's missing from modern translations because, you know, we've discovered new ancient texts since 1611. I don't know if you all are aware of that, but um, like the Dead Sea Scrolls being one of those, they're discovering uh, 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 Bible text all the way back into the second century now. It's missing because in those texts, it's not found in those manuscripts. And so as, they, as scholars study those ancient texts, they're fairly confident that those words were probably a later addition to the Lord's Prayer. And since that prayer seems to end kind of abruptly, uh, it would end with, um, and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not temptation to deliver us evil. That and then end. So Christians in the early church added the, this doxology to the end of the prayer as kind of a final word as we pray, uh, and they prayed themselves. So you might be asking if it actually wasn't in those original texts, then why are we still saying it? It's a great question. Thanks for asking. All right. I want to make a case that we should say it for two reasons. One, it is found in the Bible, just not found in Matthew 6. And two, it's been part of the history of the church's worship 
going all the way back into the first century, and we know that for sure 100% definitively. For starters, we know that this particular doxology was used as part of the Lord's Prayer in the early church. Uh, the first century church created a manual for kind of like church living, church structure, some of those kinds of things. Um, it talks about everything from uh, baptism to communion to Lord's Supper to Lord's Day worship. It, 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 it's, it's kind of this how-to church manual. And it's, it's called the Didache and, or Didache or Didache or however you want to choose to say it. I'm not going to correct you, but there is a correct pronunciation. All right. In that manual, it called on Christians to recite this prayer three times a day. And it included in that part of the manual, um, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And that goes all the way back to the first century. And, and so the ending is considered to be part of church liturgy, meaning it was how that they would close certain prayers in their worship services. For example, someone would pray and then the entire congregation would say together, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And the, the whole church would close that prayer out together as part of the liturgy. So it was a significant part of church tradition going back all the way into the, some of the apostles would have still been alive at the time. But tradition isn't enough for us to decide if we should or should not do something. Right? That's where the Catholic Church gets in trouble. So the question is, is it biblical? That's the question we should always ask. The early church didn't make this up. It, it, it literally comes straight from Scripture. And when we use this traditional ending, we aren't adding new ideas. We aren't adding um, things that weren't already actually present in the prayer itself. I mean, the first petition asks that God's name would be set apart and glorified in all the earth. The second petition mentions the kingdom. The third petition calls on God's power to, to incline our wills to his will. And so this ending is not only consistent with the prayer, it kind of summarizes the prayer, and the nature of the prayer reminds us who we're praying to. This traditional ending is, is uh, it, it fits into these petitions in heaven. And, and if you read through Scripture, and you, you, you will be aware that these doxologies are part of all kinds of different prayers and worship throughout the Old and New Testament. But if... Brent read it this morning, but turn back to 1 Chronicles. Now that you found it once, you should be able to find it pretty quickly. And um, 1 Chronicles 29, I want to read David's prayer again. We can find this doxology tied to the Lord's Prayer in 1 Chronicles 29, 10-13. So here, here uh, the offerings of the people have been brought before the king for the building of the temple, and David's going to pray over them, dedicate them to the Lord. In verse 10... He says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over them, and in your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great, to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O God, and praise your glorious name. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Can you hear it in that First Chronicles prayer? 
This traditional ending can be thought of as a summary of David's prayer. It's actually an incredible summary of David's prayer. And it points to the reminder that this is all for the glory of God, to the peace of his glorious name. I'm sorry, praise of his glorious name. And this doxology points us back to the prayer in the end of the prayer, summarizing the prayer, let your will be done on earth. Uh, uh, it, it, it will be done for your glory. Sustain us so that you are glorified as, in our lives as provider. Forgive us so that the glory of Christ can be seen in we, us forgiving others. And protect us so that your glory may be seen as almighty God. It's about God's glory. It's all about the king. It's about his kingdom. And it's not about us. And when we pray and we seek in prayer his glory... We do so because everything in our lives points us, everything in our lives as believers points us to Jesus as King. So that's my spill on why we should keep that in there, regardless if it made it in your ESV Bible or not. What I really want to do today, though, is point out what the doxology means, how it impacts us, what we're embracing when we pray, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So turn to Luke chapter 2 this morning. It's a familiar, a familiar passage. So, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now pay close attention to the language here and its impact. Remember, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Luke, as he writes here, he's building to something. So, a decree goes out from Caesar Augustus, verse 2. This was the first registration with Quirinius, was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, they came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to his firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. I'm, i got to say in the King James, even though I'm reading it in the ESV, because that's how Linus told me to do it on Charlie Brown. All right. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign unto you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace with whom he is pleased. Now, this is one of those passages we only break out in December. I mean, I could literally quote the whole passage if from nothing else, watching Charlie Brown Christmas special every year my entire life, at least twice. Now I make my kids sit down and watch it. And they have run it in their head, right? I mean, it's read in Christmas sermons, it's reenacted in children's plays, it's mentioned in Christmas cards, and it... It does bring a lot of thoughts of nostalgia. We get these mental pictures of shepherds hanging out on these rolling hills and the angels come and they're scared. 
And then they go see Jesus and they're all excited and they go back, raise some sheep, right? But I, I want us to think about this a little bit different today. Yeah, I mean, it's a Christmas passage. It's the birth of Jesus. We, the advent here, the, the incarnation is here. But I want us to think about in this moment in time, when you consider this passage at this particular historical moment in time, with everything going around it culturally and politically, you don't have a simple story of a baby being born. You have the story of a new kingdom and the announcement of its king. Glory to God in the highest. The king prophesied. The king sought after by the wise men. The king that threatened Herod so much when he heard that he was born caused him to slaughter all of the babies under two years old, hoping to kill this new king. The king that was announced would be the savior of the world, the true savior of the world. Now at the time, who was actually ruling the world? Do you know? He made a decree at the beginning of the passage. Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the savior of the world. Caesar Augustus brought the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, the first time in the world history that the world had seen peace. Caesar Augustus was the savior of the world. But now this new king shows up, announced by the angels. So you see at the beginning of this passage, you see a kingdom. And you see at the end of the passage, you see another kingdom. You see competing kingdoms. And that's what Luke is conveying to the readers in, in, in his book. Now, this Roman peace from Caesar was so powerful that he spoke a decree, and 1,500 miles later, without television and telephones and ways to get news to travel other than runners, 1,500 miles later, a young couple gets up and leaves and goes to follow the decree of the king. One writer said, suddenly we watch what Luke is doing here in this passage. It becomes a clear statement of two kingdoms, kingdoms that are destined to compete, kingdoms that offer radically different definitions of what peace and power and glory are all about. Caesar made a decree, and Jesus the king shows up. The old king in Rome, he's turning 60 now. Jesus is on the scene. Jesus is born. And he represents, this king, Caesar Augustus, represents probably at the time the best that a pagan king could do. He did bring peace and stability. Now, he brought it through a sword, but it's still peace. But unfortunately, he killed a lot of people to get his peace. Also, unfortunately, his interest is in his own glory. The glory of Caesar who elevated himself to God's status and his people fell down and worshiped him as a God. And then at the end of the Luke passage, we have a young king in Bethlehem born with a price on his head who represents a dangerous alternative, a different empire, a different power, a different glory, and a different peace. And the two kingdoms stand against one another the empire of Augustus Caesar 
and the empire of God. One to all the observers lights the world with organization and peace. I mean, it's where I mean, if you think about what happened at the time with Caesar, we get the ro- the ro- the road system. You get a mail system. You get aquifers, and it's the first time where indoor plumbing started happening within the cities, and all these things of civilization. And they see this happening, and they think this is the ultimate peace. And then you have Jesus. More like a morning star signaling it's time to blow out those candles because that's not what you think it is. Glory to God in the highest. The true king is here. And it's a double vision of reality that we invoke every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, thine is the kingdom. Your kingdom, your glory, your power, forever and ever. Amen. And we see this conflict of the two kingdoms. It carries all through the Gospels. The entire book of Matthew is about the kingdom. In fact, turn to John 18. This conflict didn't go away as Jesus got older. John 18, verse 28, this is an exchange that happened because there was another decree that came out from Caesar, and that decree was rebel kings get executed. And we know that Jesus was a constant frustration to the Sanhedrin, to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priest, the high priest. They wanted him dead, but they were, could not for the life of them figure out a way to take him out. Because every time they tried, Jesus made them look like fools. So they think they finally got him. This man claims to be the king of the Jews. If he's the king of the Jews, then he's not under Caesar. So in verse 28, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. And by now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. See, that was the problem. They'd been trying to do that. It wasn't working. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him this question, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Hmm, where we got that? Did they tell you that? Is that what they told you when they brought me here? And Pilate replied, am I a Jew? Your own people and the chief priest handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, I love this answer. You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. 
And with this, he went out again to the Jews and gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. The veiled threat here from the chief priests. If you let this man go, Pilate, you're breaking Caesar's rules. You are now an enemy of the peace of Rome. Jesus had come into Jerusalem riding as a king. He had come into Bethlehem as Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and now the same people that celebrated his coming say, give us Barabbas. And we know they shouted, crucify him. What do I do with him? Crucify him. Which goes to the prophecy that the angels sung about earlier in other texts, that he came to his own and his own did not receive them, rejected by his own people. And John mentions many times, even in this text, but many times through the book of John, we, we see where Jesus did this or that in order that a prophecy may be fulfilled. And now here we are decades later from Luke 2, and the Lord will be revealed in his glory for all to see and the king of peace is going to die at the hands of Caesar's kingdom. And in doing so, in thinking they had killed one more fake king who was seeking to destroy the Roman kingdom, they instead took part in their own downfall. They killed this king. They mocked this king. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They ridiculed him by putting a sign above his cross that said the king of the Jews. And in killing this king and nailing this king to the cross, the kingdom of God was established. The king is resurrected. The true king reigns eternal over the kingdom of God at the throne of God. This is the ultimate redefinition of the kingdom, the power and the glory. Caesar's plans for his own glory turned by God into the establishment of a true kingdom. Didn't even know it, but they defeated themselves. And as Martin Luther wrote to his barber, of all people, who asked him, teach me how to pray. Martin Luther wrote this. This was about amen. He said, notice at last that you have made the amen strong every time and not doubt. God is surely listening to you with every grace and is saying yes to your prayer. Do not think to yourself that you are kneeling or standing there alone for all Christendom. All upright Christians are with you. So Martin Luther said, when you pray this prayer, the entire kingdom, all of Christianity is praying this prayer together. All upright Christians are with you, and among you them is a unanimous, harmonious prayer which God cannot disdain. And do not leave the prayer unless you have thought it. God has heard my prayer, and I truly know this for certain. And for that, we pray, amen. This, this prayer, as we begin to just wrap up today, I, this prayer has a, an element of commission to it. If, if Jesus is the true king of all the world, whose kingdom redefines what power and glory and majesty mean 
then this is a prayer about the kingdom and the power and the glory of God that it may be seen throughout all the world. And that's how we open this prayer. When we pray this, we're acknowledging that we submit our lives to his kingdom. That it's not about us. But we also pray and work for this vision to come into reality. We're part of the kingdom. We're part of building the kingdom. God's using us to build his kingdom. We're ambassadors of his kingdom, which means we cannot pray this prayer and concede power and glory to the kingdoms of this world. If the kingdoms of the world actually believed, actually believed what we say we're praying, they would take Christians out. There are a couple of countries, I think, actually believe it. Why do you think there's so much persecution among Christians in the world? The kingdoms of this world would tremble if they understood that. We're praying that the kingdom of God, if the church isn't prepared to overthrow the kingdoms of this world, and again, I'm not talking about taking up arms. Let's see, you know, this is not a, I'm not going to get into that. All right, so not through the sword, through the gospel. Okay? I want to be clear about that because I know we got all these crazy politics things going on. I'm not calling y'all crazy politicians or anything. I'm not saying that, but y'all know it's what's out there. It's not a Christian nationalism message. I'm saying it that way. It's about the gospel. The gospel is the power. The gospel, the word of God is the sword. And it is the gospel that's going to change the lives of people one at a time. And we see the impact on that even now that Christianity's had on the world. But there's also a prayer of empowerment. Jesus lived the kingdom because he was the rightful king. And when we approach God as what the Matthew teaches us, we approach him as Abba Father. We're praying to our heavenly Father. And we're indwelled by the Spirit of God who empowers us to live in the kingdom, to live, to live the kingdom. Tom Wright said, the church prays this prayer as a new royal family, which lives by and only by a radical redefinition of kingship, of loyalty, of royalty, which we discover in the manger and at the cross. Just as Jesus was asked by what authority he was acting and answered by referring back to his anointing, the church should be active within the world as the true people of the true king, as the Christ people, and should be prepared to justify that action by appealing to her royal anointed status as the bride of Christ. And to pray this prayer is therefore to invoke the power of the spirit of Jesus as we work to the glory of God. And we close with amen, which means so be it. Not may it be, but it will be. There's a few things to remember about this prayer. This is a prayer of commitment. It's a prayer that rounds off and seals off all the others because God is king and has become king in Jesus. And we can rest in the prayer with confidence that the gospels contain remarkable promises about even prayer itself. William Temple's words on prayer said what, one of the things that amazes him about prayer is when he prays, coincidences happen, and when he stopped praying, coincidences stopped happening. I would have been much better if I could have said coincidences. 
But we know prayer is not magic. God's not a genie sitting on there to grant us our wishes. We pray to God as a God of power who's told us over and over and over again that he answers prayer. So when we pray this prayer, especially this final petition, we appeal to one who is stronger than the strong. We appeal to the creator of the world who's become king, the one who has taken the power of the world, defeated it with the power of the cross. He's confronted the glory of the world and has outshone the glory of the world on the cross. And it's because of the cross that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And because of that, we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.